Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Thursday, December 17th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. Physicists have measured sound diffusion in a perfect fluid for the first time ever and created a surprisingly popular SoundCloud track. A bunch of new works are entering the public domain in just a few weeks. And the Kellogg brothers are best remembered for inventing cornflakes, but in their time they were also known for a number of other odd foods. A look at their B-side, including snowflake toast and the world's first patented meat substitute. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Researchers at MIT have captured the sound of a perfect fluid. Didn't know fluids had sounds or could be perfect? Me either. In physics, a perfect fluid or perfect flow is one which, quoting MIT News, flows with the smallest amount of friction or viscosity allowed by the laws of quantum mechanics. Such perfectly fluid behavior is rare in nature but is thought to occur in the cores of neutron stars and in the soupy plasma of the early universe, end quote. In a paper published earlier this month in the journal Science, the MIT physicists explain how they measured sound diffusion in a perfect fluid for the first time ever. Doing so required two steps, creating a perfect fluid in the lab and then capturing the sound. Quoting extensively from MIT News here, To create a perfect fluid in the lab, the team generated a gas of strongly interacting fermions. Elementary particles such as electrons, protons, and neutrons that are considered the building blocks of all matter. Fermions naturally prefer to keep apart from each other, but when they are made to strongly interact, they can behave as a perfect fluid with very low viscosity. To create such a perfect fluid, the researchers first used a system of lasers to trap a gas of lithium-6 atoms, which are considered fermions. The researchers precisely configured the lasers to form an optical box around the fermion gas. The lasers were tuned such that whenever the fermions hit the edges of the box, they bounced back into the gas. Also, the interactions between fermions were controlled to be as strong as allowed by quantum mechanics so that inside the box, fermions had to collide with each other at every encounter, and this made the fermions turn into a perfect fluid. The team then sent sound waves through one side of the optical box by simply varying the brightness of one of the walls to generate sound-like vibrations through the fluid at particular frequencies. They recorded thousands of snapshots of the fluid as each sound wave rippled through. From their data, the researchers observed clear resonances through the fluid, particularly at low frequencies. From the distribution of these resonances, they calculated the fluid's sound diffusion, and this value, they found, could also be calculated very simply via Planck's constant and the mass of the average fermion in the gas. This told the researchers that the gas was a perfect fluid, and fundamental in nature. Its sound diffusion, and therefore its viscosity, was at the lowest possible limit set by quantum mechanics." End quote. So the team then put together a recording of the sound waves going through the gas, which has now become MIT's most listened to track on SoundCloud. And here it is.
So it's pretty cool. But why is it important? Well, Martin Zvierlein, the MIT physics professor who led the experiment, says this can now serve as a model for more complicated perfect flows, and to do things like estimate the viscosity of the plasma in the early universe and the quantum friction within neutron stars. He says, quote, It's quite difficult to listen to a neutron star, but now you could mimic it in a lab using atoms, shake that atomic soup and listen to it, and know how a neutron star would sound, end quote. Shake that atomic soup. Wow, I love that. <laughs> he also adds that there are more practical applications as well, like making materials with superconducting flow. It's all way above my head, but is definitely super cool. So January 1st, 2021 will not just be a much-needed marker of a new year of turning a page, but also will be Public Domain Day, a day celebrating all of the works entering the public domain in 2021. I was reminded of this via a quick link on cocky.org this morning. Duke Law's Center for the Study of Public Domain has a good rundown. There are some pretty heavy hitters entering the public domain in a few weeks, most notably The Great Gatsby. But also Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway, Franz Kafka's The Trial, movies like The Freshman, Go West, and ironically, a movie called Lovers in Quarantine. We'll also be getting a bunch of musical compositions by folks like Irving Berlin, Duke Ellington, Bessie Smith, Jelly Roll Martin, and George and Ira Gershwin. These and many others are all works that were published in 1925, and they were supposed to enter the public domain all the way back in 2001, which would have been 75 years ago. However, in 1998, Congress passed the Copyright Term Extension Act requiring anything published from 1923 to 1977 to have a 95-year waiting period. Public domain requirements and copyright law get super complicated very quickly. Here's just a snippet from the Center for the Study of Public Domain. Quote, Works enter the public domain on January 1st after the conclusion of the 95th year. So as of 2021, works from 1925 and before are in the public domain. Works published through 1977 had to meet certain requirements to be eligible for the 95-year term. They all had to be published with a copyright notice, and works from before 1964 also had to have their copyrights renewed after the initial 28-year term. Foreign works from 1925 are still copyrighted in the U.S. until 2021 if, one, they complied with U.S. notice and renewal formalities, two, they were published in the U.S. within 30 days of publication abroad, or three, if neither of these are true, they were still copyrighted in their home country as of January 1st, 1996, end quote. So, for example, the version of Kafka's The Trial that is entering public domain this year is actually just the original German version. And big movies from 1925 like The Lost World and Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush are not included because their copyrights were not renewed after the first 28-year term. So yeah, it's super complicated and there's even more to it, but when works enter the public domain, it's great because while copyright offers many protections while the creators of the work are still around, public domain opens the door for more creativity from more people. Instead of needing the money to license a work for an adaptation or playing ball with the estate on how you want to portray or interpret the work, public domain means you can do whatever you want. It lowers the barrier of entry. I mean, think of the endless interpretations of Shakespeare and Jane Austen's works. 
If the Austin estate were still in charge of Pride and Prejudice, I don't think we would have seen Pride and Prejudice and Zombies ever made. Which maybe some people are happy about, but I personally thought it was great. It's exciting to think about what we'll see from these works that will soon be free to play with. And savvy writers often start work on their projects ahead of them entering the public domain so that they can beat others to the punch. For example, Michael Ferris Smith has a new novel coming out called Nick, which is a prequel about The Great Gatsby's narrator, Nick Carraway. And Smith's novel is set to publish on January 5th, so he is really not wasting any time. You may have heard a number of myths surrounding the reason cornflakes were invented or the way they were promoted in their early days. Most notably, the rumor that cornflakes were marketed as a food to help curb um, sexual appetites. And while they were never marketed that way explicitly, it's not completely missing the mark to say that one of their inventors, John Harvey Kellogg, would have considered that a beneficial side effect. Kellogg had a very holistic approach to health, and he himself abstained from meat, alcohol, caffeine, smoking, and, yes, sex. But rather than being some miracle food to help others practice abstinence, the cornflakes were just another lineup in he and his brother Will Kellogg's menu of purposefully bland, easy-to-digest, high-fiber vegetarian dishes that they served at their Battle Creek Sanitarium in Michigan. The sanitarium was more John's creation. Will joined on as a business partner and would later leave after a disagreement following the brothers' invention of cornflakes. And it was less a convalescent hospital and more a spa, really. It was a place where people could go to rejuvenate themselves with a regime of hydrotherapy, phototherapy, electrotherapy, fresh air, physical exercise, and a highly specialized, low-protein, high-fiber diet. If it were around today, it would be the premier destination for celebrities and wellness influencers. Case in point, among its guests were Henry Ford, Thomas Edison, future President Warren G. Harding, Booker T. Washington, Sojourner Truth, and Amelia Earhart. The whole history of the sanitarium and of the Kellogg brothers is fascinating. Basically, John, while some of his off-the-wall medical ideas were actually based in science that would go on to become standard, he was an early proponent of germ theory, for example, he was also a huge proponent of racist and ableist eugenics, abused and encouraged abuse to prevent sexual compulsions, and was a bit of a jerk, especially to his brother Will. If you want to hear more about the Kellogg brothers, I highly recommend a trio of episodes from the podcast American Innovations that aired in the fall of 2019. The episodes are titled Cornflakes. I'll put a link in the show notes. But today, I just want to talk about some of the weirder menu items that were served up to guests at the sanitarium, some of which were patented inventions by John and others were arguably popular at the time. The New York Public Library has a copy of one of the sanitarium's menus in their archives, which Atlas Obscura recently dug into. On the menu for May 2nd, 1900, are some seemingly normal items like baked potatoes, pea soup, and granola, but also Wito's mold with grape sauce, an entire category of liquid foods, which includes boiled milk, vegetable cream, and caramel cereal, and only one entry under salad something called protos. 
Even though it's listed under salad, Protos, an invention of John Harvey Kellogg's, was one of the very first fake meats marketed as such. It was literally advertised as vegetable meats and received the U.S.'s first patent for a vegetable substitute for meat. It didn't taste anything like chicken or beef, and it wasn't meant to. Its point was simply to include the same nutritional benefits as meat. Here's how to make protose, quoting the Smithsonian. Add two cups of peanut butter, two cups mashed beans, four cups water, three tablespoons cornstarch, one teaspoon chopped onion, a pinch of sage, a pinch of salt, and mix it all together. And after you steam that in a double boiler for three hours, you'll get around 24 servings of protose. End quote. And if you think that's unappealing, just listen to this recipe from one of the earlier vegetarian cookbooks, which calls for chunks of protose to be mixed up with cold boiled potatoes, chopped celery, and mayonnaise. Yeah. Another menu item from the sanitarium is at least better sounding. It legit sounds like something that would be trending now with the same folks who got really into whipped coffee at the start of lockdown. It's called Snowflake Toast. Now, this one doesn't seem to have been invented by Kellogg, but was available as an option among several types of other toast on the menu. Atlas Obscura dug up an old recipe for snowflake toast from 1897, and it basically has you boil milk with a bit of cream and flour, add that to some beaten egg whites, dip toast in hot milk and pack it together, and then pour the egg white and milk mixture over the toast, which I suppose will end up looking kind of like a fluffy, snowy topping. People got creative with very little at the turn of the century. I will give them that. Now, while some things like protose didn't stand the test of time, John Harvey Kellogg is credited with helping popularize peanut butter. The invention lies with many different people, but most prominently George Washington Carver. He developed the first probiotic soy milk and, of course, invented cornflakes alongside his brother Will, who would go on to be the one who founded the Kellogg Company and change the face of breakfast food as we know it. I'm just glad that we eat cornflakes for breakfast and not protose. That's it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kaki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go shake the atomic soup and maybe pair it with some snowflake toast. I hope you are all having a great rest of your day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.